My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel, I'm the Tolkien Geek, and this is my review of Episode 5 of The Rings of Power, Season 1, and, well, I was right about one prediction that I had, and that was this episode was pretty much going to determine whether I really cared about anything else. I went into this knowing that if it didn't make progress or didn't do something interesting, it was kind of going to be the end of me caring about the series, and... Yeah, I don't really care about the series anymore. And I didn't care a whole lot before Episode 5, to be honest, because they had already done so much to just kind of make it so not impressive. But now I am just really don't care. Like, I can't even bring myself to be all that angry. I can I can point out really bad choices they made, but at this point I just... I, I, I've written it off. Um... And again, that's not to say that the show is unwatchable. It's still watchable, but at this point it's really only watchable if you kind of turn off your brain. Because the the it, writing inconsistencies in this episode are so flagrant that they're insulting our intelligence at this point. And I'll I'll get to that when I get to the spoiler section. So, first of all, just a couple of points. My wife is still watching it and she is a little bit of background on my wife. She's not a huge Lord of the Rings person like I am, but she is a geek or a nerd or whatever you want to call it. She's very into Star Wars, and that's kind of her fandom. But the other thing is, she recently watched Obi-Wan Kenobi. She held off for a long time because she was kind of disgusted with a lot of the stuff that Disney had done with Star Wars and held off on watching it. She finally did watch it, and she actually watched it paying attention. If you watch my last review, then you know that she is kind of watching the Rings of Power along with doing an art craft project on the side, so she's kind of doing two things at once, which she is better at than me. Uh, but she actually watched Obi-Wan with, like, focused or Kenobi, or I forget, but she watched it with a little more focus and not doing two things at once. Rings of Power, she's still watching with doing other things on the side, so take that as you will. This is, for her, it works as kind of a calming the brain down before bed type of thing. <clears throat> One thing that she mentioned, and it, it comes up in the spoiler section, so I won't do it yet, but she pointed out a plot issue that even I didn't notice at first, and there is a way to solve it, and I'll discuss when I get into it, but to solve it requires you assuming information that you have no real grounds to assume. You just have to assume it for the benefit of the show. Uh, she also had a question which was really just more about her own lack of knowledge about Middle-earth, and so there was that. But she still doesn't like Galadriel. She only knows the names of a handful of characters this far into the season, which, you know, I'm not surprised. Um, and so her overall comments were, you know, kind of along the same lines that it's been for most of the season, which is, you know, there, there's just not a lot of investment in the characters. We don't get to know them well enough to even know their names, uh... Galadriel's character is just not likable. Uh, it's just, it's just not great. Um, 
for my own thoughts in terms of non-spoilers, for about the first 30 minutes of this episode, I was actually kind of happy because they didn't do anything completely stupid in the first 30 minutes and they actually gave us a little bit of character development for some of the characters that we really had no development for prior to this point. And that includes Farazon, who we had, you know, a little bit of a inkling of his character before this. His son Kimmon gets a little bit of extra. Theo gets some with Arondir, and they actually have a kind of a nice moment, which I'll touch on a little more in the spoiler section. And another thing that I noticed was they actually had a fight scene that wasn't completely stupid. Now, that's not to say it was a very good fight scene. I haven't watched anybody else's reviews, but I've picked up on the fact that Shad Brooks over on Night's Watch really, really ripped on the fight scene with Galadriel and a bunch of the recruits for the the mission to Middle-earth in Numenor. And I am not super into sword fighting enough to really put a whole lot of criticism on that myself. But one thing I will say is, unlike all the previous fights where it's just been like completely suspension of disbelief breaking... This one at least didn't have people just kind of randomly standing around doing absolutely nothing while Galadriel trashed them, unlike the troll fight or, you know, the orc fight or any of the other fight scenes. At least not that I noticed. It may be that they just cut it in such a way that I didn't pick up on it as well, but whatever the case may be, the fight scene was, for somebody who is not you know, well-versed in what a sword fight should look like, it's at least plausible. So, hooray, five episodes in, they finally did a fight scene that wasn't just like, what? So, that was an improvement. Uh, So, beyond that and the character development, there wasn't a whole lot else I liked, specifically. We we still don't really have a good handle on who Aarian is, except we get just enough of a conversation between her and Kimmon in this episode that we find out that she is definitely more on the anti-elf side of things, which in some ways is kind of surprising and in some ways not. I mean, her character is invented, so it kind of makes sense that she's going to end up not surviving and making it to Middle-earth. Spoilers, Numenor sinks, guys. And since Aarian is not a character that Tolkien had in the story... You know, it makes sense that she's probably going to drown with Numenor. Therefore, it would make sense that she's one of the bad guys. It's weird, though, because up to this point, she has seemed at least like one of the more reasonable members of Elendil's family. We don't get a whole lot of Anarion, because all we get is a couple of references to him. And Isildur is a, a, a guy who apparently just doesn't really have any discipline. Elendil we get some time with, at least, but... Even his, we get the idea that he's an elf friend, but beyond that, it's not really clear how strong that is. So, Aarian being, you know, effectively one of the king's men, you know, in in the actual source material, the people are divided into the king's men and the faithful. Aarian clearly doesn't fall into the faithful category. She's going to be a king's man type, so that's interesting. And apparently she's developed her relationship with Kimmon 
during some period which we don't see on screen because she's, you know, at least conversing with him as if she knows him beyond just his attempts to hit on her randomly. Uh, but beyond that, like, I mean, some of the characterization gets a little bit developed and that sort of thing. We also do get a scene with Galadriel and Halbrand where they actually act like human beings, and it's not just Galadriel being an idiot and Halbrand showing her up for being an idiot. It's actually them kind of talking about their past and what their problems are and being kind of human. And by human, I don't mean human versus elf. I mean human as opposed to a cardboard cutout character who you could put in literally any role based on their stupid personality traits. So... There were some good things, and a lot of that came in the first 30 minutes. Oh, another good thing about this episode was we got very little Harfoot. All four plot lines are in this episode, but the Harfoot plot line got very short shrift, for which I was very thankful, because again, nothing much happened. Um, Also, we get sort of the introduction of a fifth plot line, but I'll get to that in the spoilers. Speaking of spoilers, I've kind of talked about most everything here. I mean, the writing is still not great. Some of the writing in this episode was decent in terms of dialogue. Most of it was at least not totally cringeworthy. Uh, but there were still things that were just like, huh? And the the plot, the, the narrative writing is really where I start to lose it. And that, that, I think, is where this show completely lost me, is how badly they did it in this episode. So let's get into the actual plot in the spoiler section for this so I can really get into this and explain why at this point I really no longer care about this show. So let's kick things off in the Southlands again. Of course, Arondir in the last episode delivered the message of Adar, which is basically submit to me or die. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And Bronwyn leads off by trying to rally the people who were in the tower to you know, prepare to defend. And at first, everybody seems to be on board with this idea. And then Waldreg, who is the guy who, in the previous episode, came to Theo and was like, yeah, I I know you got my sword and we're going to serve Sauron. He comes and counters this and basically says that, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. And he refers to the supposed enemy, which is such a stupid thing to say. Uh, I mean, they're clearly the enemy. (laughs) They're orcs, and they took over their village and wiped out another village. And this is not really... They're obviously the enemy. So the fact that he says supposed enemy really tells us more about him than anything else. But of course, he also says, you know, if you oppose these people, you're going to die. And then roughly half the group decides to go with him and go serve Adar you know, at, at his command, basically. And it's, you, the problem is you leave the scene wondering, how did he convince all these people to do this? Unless it's just the threat of, if you don't, you're going to die. Because he didn't give any convincing reasons. And I'm still also wondering, why haven't they just left Ostirith, which is where they're at, and just go somewhere else instead of trying to hold up in a siege to just get killed. Who knows? Anyway, he leaves, and as he's leaving, he sees Theo standing over by the side, and he tries to, you know, like, beckon him over, and like, come on, this is our time, or whatever. And Theo stays behind. This is what leads to 
one of the better scenes in the sh- in the episode where Arondir later will see Theo practicing some archery and he'll you know give him an archery tip and Theo's like why are you hanging around you you know you people hate us and blah 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 and they have conversation which isn't great but at least it's something between the two of them where Arondir gives you know some halfway decent like moral lesson to him and they kind of become sort of friends instead of just Theo being an anti-elf bigot (laughs) which he's been the whole time Uh, and so they have this conversation and after Theo comes around he says there's more and he shows Arondir the sword and he says I've seen this before and he goes over to a wall and pulls aside a bunch of vines and there's this image of it's a, a helmet slash mask or whatever. And it looks, you know, if you've seen Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, it looks like Sauron's helmet, more or less. And it's above a stone carving of the same sword that Theo has. And the sword is whole and it's stabbing through a man who's just lying, you know, it's not clear if he's lying on the ground or like being livid. It's whatever. But I mean, it's he's flat. And the sword is piercing him. And so Arondir's like, oh boy. And he goes to Bronwyn and he tells her that this sword is some kind of a key that was used to enslave her people. And she's like, what do you mean a key? What does it do? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm just like, well, how do you know it's a key? Why would you use that word? Like, There's one image of what is presumably Morgoth, I'm assuming, using the sword to kill somebody, and do, we don't know what. And suddenly this gives Arondir some kind of insight. Like, how does he know this, but nothing else? Nothing is explained, and so I'm just left wondering, how do you know anything other than it's there, and it's an image, and it's somehow important? So anyway, Arondir, you know, ends up making the point that you know, if they don't resist and the sword is taken by Adar, it could, you know, unleash who knows what kinds of, well, it's like, well, indeed, who knows? You know nothing except somehow that it's a key to enslaving the people of the Southlands. How you know that is a complete mystery. It's just, the writing makes no sense. It just doesn't make any sense. People know what they need to know so as to create tension in the plot They don't know what they should know based on things that make sense in the plot. I mean, there's no sense of a consistent world-building effort in this show, period. But this is hardly the worst of it. Waldrig leads his group to Adar and offers his services and says that he's been waiting for this day that he could, you know, serve Sauron again. He looks up and says, you are Sauron, are you not? And then Adar comes over and just, like, grabs him by the throat and slams him onto the ground. And he's like, well, I'll serve you whoever you are. And Waldrig is a complete coward. (laughs) He's just... um, With the group came uh, Rowan, who is the punk kid who was mad at Arondir in the first episode and who went with Theo to see the sword in a later episode, and then went to the village with Theo and left him there to die in another episode. Adar grabs him and basically tells Waldreg, well, blood is the only thing that binds. And 
he gives him a knife, basically. And the implication is he's supposed to kill Rowan. We don't see it happen on screen. We don't see anything really on screen after this point with that group. But the implication is he's supposed to kill Rowan. And, of course, Rowan is just like, please, Waldrick, don't do it. And it's like, what did you think was going to happen going to side with orcs, you morons? At any rate, uh, go back to Ostirith where you know, the good guys are, Bronwyn, after hearing what Arondir has to say about the sword, she's like, well, I guess we just got to surrender. <laughs> and again, I'm just wondering, what made you change your mind? She even tells Arondir, you were right to watch us. You know, like, and Arondir says, you've spent an age trying to regain your virtue, or regain, recover, or I forget the word he uses, recover your virtue, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, you have almost the same exact racist, bloodline, bigoted views that the Watch Warden has. Like, it doesn't take an age to regain your virtue. Your evil does not pass down like that in Tolkien. Or in the real world. But anyway, okay, fine, whatever. But Bronwyn is all about surrendering now, and I'm just wondering, Why? Why all of a sudden are you wanting to surrender? It's not like you had a whole heck of a lot of hope before. And again, the option of just leaving Ostirith and going somewhere else, that option is still on the table. Why do you have to hold out here where you're already almost starving anyway? What is the point? Okay, fine. That's the Southlands. Not a whole lot happens, but it's at least not... You know, we get at least the scene with Arondir and Theo, which is kind of a nice character development thing there. I'm still not super impressed with um, Arondir's acting. Like, Ismail Cordoba Cruz, I think is... I, I may be mixing up the name a little bit, but... He's an okay actor. I don't get the impression he's a great actor, but here it might be the writing. Like, I'm, I'm just really not sure how to... Like, in some scenes, he seems to be pretty good, but mostly it's just kind of the same flat intonation and everything throughout. Bronwyn's actress, I think, is a better actress. Theo, we just haven't seen enough of. Okay, so that's the Southlands. I'll cover the Harfoots next because they're just super quick. Almost nothing happens with the Harfoots. We start out with seeing Nori and her family and Poppy together seemingly separated from the rest of the group. So at first you're like, okay, I guess they're just kind of on their own. And of course the stranger is there. Nori has apparently taught him enough language that he can kind of hold a conversation. And she talks about the perils that they're going to meet on their migration. And he says perils. And she of course defines what perils means and says something that's like something that can make you dead. And he says, I am peril. Meaning because he killed the, the fireflies in the previous episode. And she says, no, no, that was just an accident. You're really good. <clears throat> and he says, I am good. And, okay, so we got some kind of inner conflict where he's, like, concerned about being a bad guy, but she's trying to reassure him and whatever. We see them travel a bit. Poppy sings a wandering song in which there is a line about not all who wander or wander are lost because uh, we've got to throw in Easter eggs that people have fans of the show or the movies or the books will actually recognize the song isn't bad but it's not great um and then it shows them on the map you know the the map shows a track that they're taking in their migration and it's a 
long track. <laughs> I mean, they go from, I think, if I remember right, it's roughly just south of Mirkwood, all the way down, like, to the Emin Muil and then over east. Bearing in mind that these are Harfoots, which means they're, you know, less than four feet tall, and they're pulling carts by hand, I have to assume that this is taking them weeks, if not months, to do. And one of the things I hate about this goes back to an issue I mentioned in an earlier review, which is the time issue. You cannot make this time thing work with all of them. All the storylines that are connected by Meteor Man are taking different amounts of time to do the same stuff. And at this point, seemingly, the Harfoot plotline has gone on for weeks or months, whereas the Southlands plotline potentially is only within three or four days. How are they going to make all that join up? Hopefully they don't try with the Harfoots, but they're going to run into problems once they start merging some plot lines, and it's going to happen eventually. Uh, so that's a that's an issue. Uh, but then they start going through a forest, and it turns out, oh, they actually are with the rest of the Harfoots, because we see Sadok talking to Malva, and Malva is like the one who wants to completely leave Nori's family behind, and like, yeah, just, just get rid of them. And <laughs> Sadok's not quite ready to go as far as she is. Uh, but they're wandering through a forest, and the forest is creepy. And there's some comments about how it's not supposed to be like this. Why is it like this? And then somebody sees some footprints of wolves. Which, by the way, they keep referring to them as wolves. They don't look like wolves. If I was going to say what they were, I would have guessed wargs. But they don't look like the warg that was in the Southlands with a rondeer. So I don't... I don't know. Anyway... One of the wolves, or whatever it is, ends up actually attacking. And the stranger slams the ground with his hammer fists and basically creates a shockwave and knocks the wolves, wargs, whatever, away and saves the hobbits. So, you know, that, I mean, did I say hobbits? I meant harfoots. I'm sorry. So he scares them away. But apparently when he hit the ground, he, like, cut his arm or something. And then Nori later comes up finding him holding his arm in a pool of water and he's muttering whatever language he's using natively. And she walks up and she sees that there's ice forming around his arm and it's kind of coming up his arm. And of course, as the viewer, it seems pretty obvious that what he's doing is healing his own arm through whatever magical means she, for whatever reason, gets super worried about this and starts to reach for his arm because he's not responding to anything she's saying. And then she does it right at the moment that the ice gets to where she touches and then it starts to freeze her. And then <laughs> she panics, of course. And the end result is he does something that kind of blows her back and the ice goes away. And she is, of course, now really super afraid and, of course, I'm just sitting here thinking, girl, you're stupid. You should have known not to do that. Clearly, he knew what he was doing, or you should have assumed he knew what he was doing, and you shouldn't have stuck your hand right where the ice was because you should have known that was going to happen. And you could tell that he wasn't even recognizing the fact that you were right there beside him, so you shouldn't be surprised that he just kept on going. Why are you suddenly afraid of him like he's a bad guy? Because he actually goes over to to figure out, like, what's wrong with her, because he's still kind of like, he was so focused on what he was doing, I'm not sure he realized she was there at all until she got blown away. And she runs from him. And then there's a scene where he kind of goes, 
uh, I don't know exactly how I'd describe it. He's clearly emotional about the whole thing, and the trees around seem to start moving in the wind, kind of like it did in a really early episode when he first showed up. So that's kind of the whole Harfoot plotline. I mean, there's not a whole heck of a lot there. The only thing I'll say here is we kind of add in a fifth plot line, this is what I mentioned earlier, with three completely mysterious figures who arrive at the site where the meteor crashed and look at it and walk down into the area and see it and then that's all we get. You know, and these are the, like if you've seen the promo materials and stuff, one of them is the person that a lot of people were speculating was going to be Sauron, but who is apparently not Sauron. They're all dressed in white. One of them's got a helmet. One of them's dressed like some kind of priest or priestess. And then the other one is... I'm not even sure. But one of them is carrying some kind of a mirror-type thing with one of the symbols that the stranger was carving in a piece of wood in episode two, I think it was. So it's like somehow they know who or what he is in some way, however. But literally, they show up, they see where the meteor landed, and that's it. And again, this is where I come back to my complaint of they keep adding in characters and give us nothing about them. They just throw mystery boxes at us and that's supposed to keep us interested. It's not working anymore, guys. I don't care. I don't care who these people are because you gave me no reason to care who these people are. They're just people who are there dressed up in white clothes for whatever reason who are somehow interested in this meteor for who knows what reason and I just can't be bothered anymore. So, that's the Harfoots. Now let's take a look at Elrond and Durin, because this is, as usual, some of the best stuff. Elrond and Durin's relationship is, you know, one of the best things about this whole thing. Now, the plot line in this part is actually one of the worst, because this is where things got really nasty. Uh, A lot of the Numenor stuff I actually like the best in this episode because they didn't do anything too screwy, although it has its problems. Uh, But a lot of interesting things happen in the Numenor plotline that I'll get to. In the Elrond and Durin plotline, the first thing we see is that Elrond, Durin, Gilgalad, and Celebrimbor are all having dinner with, you know, some other people maybe. And Gilgalad tries to engage in conversation that you might, you know, identify with kind of English nobility at their formal dinner who don't like each other because Gilgalad's questioning is clearly hostile. He's like, you know, it's really interesting that y'all have suddenly become way more active in your mining and stuff. What led to this? And Durin's Durin senses the presumed ulterior motive behind this and gets kind of hostile in <laughs> in response. And he ends up asking where did you get this piece of stone for this table? And Gilgalad's like, well, why do you ask? And Durin says, basically, this stone is only found at really great depths, and we treat it, you know, like it's sacred. We only use it for tombs, basically. And Gilgalad uh, actually displays a little bit of diplomacy and says, oh, well, I'm sorry for the sacrilege. We'll have to send it back with you so it can be treated with proper respect or whatever. We'll come back to this later because this is a problem. Uh, Durin, in this context, says, well, it's good to see that there's still honor among elves. Anyway, 
In the course of this conversation at one point, you know, Gil Galad, of course, asking about this question, and Elrond throws in because he's trying to keep the peace or whatever, you know, it's like dwarves don't have ages and ages to do stuff like we elves do, so they kind of have to hurry. And <laughs> Durin starts to make a comment about how the elves take so long to decide to do things that it takes them like two weeks to decide to take a, you know, insert expletive for bathroom break. And of course, before he can get the whole word out, Elrond interrupts. And I'm just, I'm sorry. I don't care that you didn't let him finish the word. The fact that you started the word in an adaptation of Tolkien makes me so mad, I can't even describe it. It's like, that, is, that does not belong in a Tolkien adaptation of any kind. And that right there tells you almost all you need to know. Similar problem, when and I've, it's, some people had noticed this in earlier episodes, and it never struck me until I started paying attention to it, but Nori, in the Harfoot plotline, when she's describing something to the stranger, she says, so this is like, you know, in the way that, you know, not this is like that, but uses the like as a placeholder for a pause because she, and it's like, that's just not, that's such a modern way of talking and it shouldn't be in Tolkien. Who wrote this? So that's a problem, but you could almost let that go. But then things get really nutty because after they have their dinner and Elrond is talking to Gilgalad, Gilgalad asks him, you know, have you heard of the song of the roots of Hithyglir, which Hithyglir is Misty Mountains. And Elrond basically says, like, nobody believes that or whatever. And El- and Gilgalad says, recite it. And so he says it's this legend that on top of the Misty Mountains was this tree in which hung the last Silmaril and an elf and a Balrog were fighting over it, and the elf was as, had a heart as pure as Manwe, and the Balrog, of course, was evil. And as they're fighting over this tree, lightning strikes the tree, and the light of the Silmaril goes down into ore in the mountains, and the ore got basically the, the purity of light, but also the, compl- the unyielding strength of evil. And, of course, he's talking about Mithril. <laughs> right? So, the story here is that Gilgalad thinks that the dwarves have discovered this, and he's wanting to know if Elrond has figured this out. And Elrond's like, I swore to Durin that I wouldn't reveal their secrets, so I'm not going to tell you. But he does, he's like, so Durin was right. This really is all about getting something out of the dwarves. And so Gilgalad's like, oh, you admit it then? He's like, the only thing I admit is that you're, (laughs) he doesn't say it, but you have to think in his mind is, the only thing I'm admitting is that you did send me there with ulterior motives. But anyway, they have this conversation, and Elrond refuses to, you know, give the information to Gilgalad, and Gilgalad's like, well, it's going to be the end of the Elvish race if you don't. And Elrond's like, what? And so he takes him to the tree where at the end of episode one, I think it was, the leaf fell off and he picked it up and it was black and whatever on the back. And he says it was doing this before, just before Galadriel came back from the north. And we thought that by 
sending her and the last vestiges of war away, it would restore, you know, light to the Eldar or whatever. And it's not clear what he's talking about. It's like, what what do you mean? Like, what is what does this tree have to do with anything? And why does it have to do with the elves? And there's no explanation of any of this. But anyway, he says, you know, but it didn't, and it's getting worse. And we think that the because the light of the Silmarils is in this ore, that if we get it, we can restore, you know, the elves to what they're supposed to be. And he then follows it up and says... You know, if you don't do this and the elves have to leave the shores of Middle-earth and the armies of darkness will sweep all over Middle-earth and wipe out all peoples, it won't just be the elves. Okay, we're introducing a lot of dramatic tension here, but has anybody noticed the fact that Gil-galad up to this point has apparently completely sincerely believed there is no longer any threat in Middle-earth? The days of war are over, the days of peace have begun... He never backs off of that, and he never intimates that he's just saying that to get rid of Galadriel. He says he's sending Galadriel away because he thinks that if she stays, then she's going to make things, you know, make the evil come that she is afraid of. But he never indicates that he thinks that there actually is evil out there that's going to be a problem regardless. So suddenly, he's worried about armies of darkness that he doesn't even apparently believe exist. And he's using that to threaten Elrond with, you better to break your oath and tell me what you know without regard to your oath so that we can save the elves and everybody else from a threat that I don't even think exists. Like, what? <laughs> oh, and by the way, the point that my wife noticed that I didn't notice in all this is that if the whole point was to get the Mithril all along, and it was Elrond's idea to go to the dwarves, how did Gil-galad set this whole thing up? Like, how was he supposed to figure out that by sending Elrond on a mission to theoretically figure out a way to build a forge by spring, and by the way, Gil-galad makes this point too, or maybe it's Celebrimbor a little bit later, that they need to get the mithril by spring. Why they have a timetable? How they know they have a timetable? Don't know, don't care. I've given up caring. I'm still mad about it, but I don't care. But at any rate, the point being, he's telling Elrond that he needs to go help Celebrimbor build a forge, and it's Elrond's idea to go to the dwarves. Now, you can, like I said, fix this and assume that Gil-galad knew about Elrond's friendship with Durin, and therefore that he would probably be able to get the dwarves to help with the building of the forge, because he knew that there wasn't enough manpower among the elves. Why there's not enough manpower among the elves, I don't know. How the dwarves could afford to spare so much manpower when they're expanding their mines in Khazad Doom and mining Mithril and everything else, I don't know. None of it makes any sense. But, so anyway, you have to assume that Gilgalad knows things that the show has given us no reason to know that he knows. Anyway, then we cut to a scene of Elrond having a conversation with Celebrimbor. And Celebrimbor knows all about the Mithril. He knows everything about it. And Elrond is talking to Celebrimbor about how he's not going to break his oath and tell Gilgalad. And I'm like, but dude, if Celebrimbor knows because you told him, then you have broken your oath. You said you weren't going to tell anybody. I mean, he's sitting there showing him the little piece of Mithril that Durin gave him. Literally. And Celebrimbor is talking about its qualities and what he thinks it's going to do. And I'm just like, 
this is where I lost it. This is where the show completely lost any sense of we care about continuity. Because if Elrond was actually concerned about keeping his oath, he obviously wouldn't have told Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor wouldn't even know that he had Mithril and wouldn't know any of this stuff. But clearly he has. And yet he's pretending that he hasn't broken his oath. I just... Ah! Like I said, it's literally intelligence insulting. That's how bad it is at this point. They cannot write a consistent narrative to save their lives. So... They have this conversation, and Keller Brimbor basically confirms what Gilgalad said, and said, "Yeah, we do think that unless we can get this, you know, stuff by spring, and basically bathe the elves in the light of the Mithril, then we're all just gonna fade." And so then Elrond goes and has a chat with Durin. They're on their way back to Khazad Dûm, while a bunch of elves are carrying the giant stone slab um, from the table, and one of the elves kind of loses his grip, and Durin kind of grins. And Elrond looks at him, you made it up, didn't you? And Durin says, well, yeah, you know, Deese has been wanting a new table for a while now. Oh, okay, okay. Like, it's a joke, but on the other hand, Durin made this huge deal about how the elves were basically being sacrilegious with sacred stone that presumably they got on their own and didn't get through untoward means and he uses this as leverage to get it so that Disa can get a new table. And in the in the process of this conversation, has the gall to compliment Gilgalad on having honor among the elves because they're willing to give it up. Durin, that's called theft by fraud. <laughs> Gosh! Oh. Elrond does not chide him at all for this. He then just jumps immediately into telling him... So I need to be honest with you. I've been completely honest with you. I didn't come to Khazad Doom for friendship. I came out of ambition. Which, as I mentioned in previous episode, this really should have been kind of obvious to Durin. The fact that Elrond was able to calm Durin down as much as he was is kind of shocking. Because when he found the Mithril mine entrance, and Durin's like, I knew it, and he just manages to calm him down. It's like, why would you trust him at that point? <laughs> why? Uh, because, let's face it, he did show up with something that he wanted. It wasn't purely out of friendship, and we all know it wasn't purely out of friendship. Anyway, now Elrond is openly admitting it, which, you know, at least he's doing the right thing in admitting it. And then he follows it up and says, I didn't know it, but I came for Mithril. And he explains what Gilgalad told him and how, you know, they need this to, you know, restore the Eldar, because otherwise they're going to fade in their... Immortal souls will dwindle to nothing and basically become shadows. Why this is going to happen without Mithril has got nothing at all to do with Tolkien. This, you know, the elves fading in Middle-earth is a thing that Tolkien was writing about, and it was inevitable and it had nothing to do with anything other than they're just going to fade in Middle-earth. That's just their natural progression. So they're just throwing in this whole thing to create unnecessary tension for who knows what reason. I mean, somehow they're going to make this all connect to Durin's Bane eventually, I'm sure. But it's like this whole time they've been building up this this plot line so that they can do this now. It's just like, what? Who came up with this cockamamie idea? It's just so absurd. And so Elrond says, you know, the, the fate of the elves is in your hands. And Durin's, whose hands? 
Elrond says, your hands. Whose hands? Durin's just like rubbing this in so hard, and it makes me like Durin so much less. But, you know, in fairness, he's also been lied to the whole time, and not even entirely intentionally by Elrond. So, kind of understandable, I guess. But it's just, the whole thing makes no sense. But it's it's really the key point to me was when Elrond you know, is clearly talking to Celebrimbor about the Mithril, and Celebrimbor knows about the Mithril, and Elrond is acting like he still hasn't broken his oath. And I'm just... What are you talking about? You clearly did! Ugh. Whatever. That's Elrond's plotline for this one. Now we finally get to Numenor. So, one of the first things that we see is... Aryan trying to get Kimmon's attention, and she's like, why is your father going along with, you know, this expedition to Middle-earth? He's not in favor of elves, and Kimmon's like, yeah, but right or wrong, he's loyal to the queen, and, and Aryan says he's wrong. <laughs> and so Kimmon's like, I will try to talk to him, because Aryan says he'll listen to you, and he's like, he closes his ears when I'm nearby, and she convinces him to do it anyway. So he meets Farazhan in a tavern or wherever and starts having a conversation with him and basically he's trying to convince him like you don't take orders from any elf or whatever and Farazhan's like orders from an elf at the end of this the elves are going to be taking orders from us and basically he explains this grand plan which is they're going to help Halbrand who they are treating as the king of the Southlands even though there's no real evidence that that's who he is um, and he says that they're going to be forever in our debt, and then we're just going to be able to have all this extra trade, and basically an empire, and then we're just going to be the greatest power in the world. And Kimmon, his face lights up like, oh, I get it. And, you know, seemingly he's now on board with the plan, because Farazhan is clearly just a scheming Machiavellian, thinking about how all these things play together in his own little game. So, <laughs> and there's indications as well that of course behind the scenes while Muriel is gone he's going to be working things in Numenor so you think Kimmon is now on board with the plan but as it turns out he's either not or he's a complete idiot <laughs> and this is another point where I got just I just couldn't I couldn't do it um later on what we're going to find out is Sildur, of course, isn't allowed to go on the expedition by Elendil because he basically threw away his chance at the Sea Guard and all this, and so he was told, no. He tries to get in good with his buddy, Valandil, who managed to get promoted, and I'll come back to that. And Valandil's like, no, I'm not risking my name when you're just going to throw away this opportunity like you've thrown away every other opportunity. So what does he do? He stows away on a boat. There's supposed to be like five ships sending 500 men. How 500 men is supposed to be a significant fighting force? I don't know. Nevertheless, they're sending five ships and 500 men. And the next thing we know, Kimmon is on the boat with a lantern, and he starts opening up casks of alcohol, I guess. I don't know exactly what it's supposed to be, but it's flammable. <laughs> we know that because we can tell he's about to set fire to the ship. Um, he makes a noise, and then there's a cough, and the cough is a Sildur hiding under a blanket, and he's stowing away, right? He realizes what Kimmon is going to do, 
and tries to stop him, and they have a fight, which of course leads to exactly the thing that Isildur was trying to stop, and exactly the thing that Kimmon was trying to accomplish, just maybe not quite in such a dangerous way. They both run up decks, you know, to try to get away before the whole thing blows up. Kimmon falls down, or slipped, it's not exactly clear how that happened, I kind of missed it a little bit, but it's not important. But he either knocks himself out, or something, and Isildur gets him off the boat, and swims away in time to get away from the explosion. When they get pulled out of the water, Elendil rather conveniently is right there. Kimmon confirms that, yes, Isildur saved me. He didn't have to do that. But And Isildur makes up a story about how, you know, uh, something just kind of went wrong. You know, he makes up a story for why the explosion happened to kind of cover for Kimmon. Kimmon still doesn't like Isildur, because as soon as nobody's watching him, he's like, get away from me. But... The main point is they're both kind of covering for each other so that they don't, either of them, get in trouble. It's like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, but what got me about this scene is if Kimmon was recognizing the the point of Farazon's plan, why does he then go and try to sabotage the expedition? Now, you could assume, and again, you can try to save this plot by saying he acted like that in front of Farazon, but all the while he was like, no, I still think this is a really horrible idea. It's really not clear exactly, but I still found it completely unrealistic because there's nothing in between those two scenes that leads you to think that he is still dead set against the Middle-Earth expedition. And so it's just like, what? You know, if you would give it as just enough of his thought process to be like, well, I still want to stop this, even though he thinks it's a good idea, I don't. They don't even give us that. So it's like, I just can't give the writers the benefit of the doubt, because clearly they have no problem with really bad contradictions. So I'm just going to assume everything that looks like a contradiction is a contradiction, because that's the way they roll. So again, no benefit of the doubt from here on out. Just none. So that all happens. Let me go back a little bit, because the way that Volandil got a promotion was he was training with a bunch of the other people who had volunteered to go to Middle-Earth. Elendil was kind of watching him train, being their overseer or whatever. Galadriel walks up, and she's basically saying they're not really ready for this, and they start having this conversation, some of which is in Elvish. And eventually she decides to go up there at Elendil's suggestion and train him. So she takes a sword and she says, you know, if any of you can, you know, manage to score flesh on me, then, you know, see if, see if you could score flesh on me. And then Elendil says, if any of you do, you'll be promoted. Here's the fight scene, right? So Galadriel starts fighting one guy. At first it's just Volandil. And then more people join in and eventually I think ends up up to five or something. And she's trying to give him advice and all this stuff during the fight scene. My biggest problem with the fight scene is she keeps telling them things like, you know, let your feet do the fighting, not your hands. It's more about balance than strength. It's, you know, all this other stuff. And it's like, but you're not teaching them anything. You're just throwing out aphorisms effectively and not teaching them how to effectively implement any of this advice. Meanwhile, you're just kind of embarrassing them, making them look bad. But, you know, so she's not a good teacher, (laughs) but she's a good sword fighter because she thrashes all five of them. Um... Like I said, the sword fight is not so obviously bad as the ones that have come before. I'm not going to analyze it in detail, but the main point is nobody is sitting around being an absolute doofus, you know, do-nothing the entire fight while Galadriel kicks everybody else's butt around. 
Volandil manages finally to scratch her arm at the very end, and so he gets a promotion. That's how that happens. And in the scene where Isildur, you know, basically tries to get in good with him so that he might make it on to the expedition, you know, he gets... that he They're all in a tavern, and they're singing a song about Numenor. And so this is like two songs in one episode, and I don't think we've really had any other songs so far, but this song I wasn't really that keen on because it seemed like halfway between a bar song and a national anthem. And it was just like, well, which one are you trying to be? Because it doesn't seem really like either. But anyway, so all of this is happening, and after the ship blows up, Farazon takes the opportunity to try to argue with Muriel that, you know, maybe we should delay this. And, you know, Galadriel says, you know, remember why you chose to go on this mission in the first place. You know, it's, you know, you're doing the right thing, you got the blessing of your father and all this, and Muriel says, we're going to reconvene this council in the morning to make our final decision. And in all this, Halbrand is brought up as being kind of a key to the whole thing. Why? I don't know. Halbrand hasn't been part of any of the discussions, but apparently Galadriel has been putting him forward as the guy who is really gung-ho, even though Halbrand has been very clear that he doesn't want to go back to Middle-earth. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about this is, and here we get another plot problem, prior to this, Muriel had gone to her father's chambers up in the tower and Palantir is actually up and walking around, seemingly feeling better. Why? Not exactly clear, but he ends up telling Muriel, don't go to Middle-earth. All that awaits you there is darkness. And this is after Muriel has told him, you know, we're doing what you, you know, what you always believe. We're helping the elves and doing all this. And he's, you know, he's like, don't go to Middle-earth. All that awaits you there is darkness. And that's kind of the end of the conversation. So Muriel knows that her father is actually not approving of this mission. But when Galadriel mentions that in the council meeting where they're talking about this after the ship blows up, she doesn't mention anything, and she seems to just kind of leave it open. And I'm just like, what? why are you... Mm. It just doesn't make any sense, because now, if she trusts that her father was right all along, why is she now not trusting his judgment on, you know... Did he not say anything more specific in that conversation with her? Did she literally just leave him after that, going, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> the writing in this show is so bad. Nevertheless, then we get a scene with Galadriel and Hal Halbrand, and they're talking about their respective issues. Halbrand, you know, asks her about the dagger. He surmises that it comes from somebody that she knew, and she tells him it's his brother, and, you know, she's... And he's like, oh, so this is just all about vengeance. And, you know, she never exactly denies that, but she basically is making the point that it's about trying to accomplish something in Middle-earth that will give her her peace. And she says, your peace also awaits in Middle-earth. He says that he swore never to go back. And he at one point had given her his the little crest thing that he's been wearing. Like, I don't want anything to do with it. She gives it back to him. And they have this conversation and, and he, he says something along the lines of, you don't know what I've done, you know, in, in my past. I did, he implies that he's done some horrible things. And by horrible things, I mean like possibly up to the murdering of innocence or something, because that's kind of the context in which the comment comes up. Next morning, of course, he does go, he takes his crest, and they all get ready to depart for Middle-earth, and they go on these three ships, 
there's only three ships now, and I'm not exactly sure why. Did two ships blow up in the night? Whatever. But they're taking horses and presumably at least 100 men per ship because there were originally five ships and 500 men. So at least 100 men per ship and apparently horses because Isildur's job is in the stables. And you look at these ships and they're just not much bigger than a Viking ship. I They're not very big. I don't think you could get 100 men plus enough food to get all the way to Middle Earth on these ships, let alone horses, okay? And the the disappointingness of this is kind of hit home by the fact that in the Unfinished Tales, when we get the the story of Aldarion and Arendis, which happens more than a thousand years prior to this point, before Numenor has even hit its peak, Aldarion built a ship that was so big, it was basically called a floating castle. In fact, I think that's what its name translated to. It was huge. These ships are just, you know, I mean, they're boats, but they don't give you the impression of being like the greatest sea power that Middle-earth has ever known, (laughs) by any stretch. And I'm just sitting here going, that's really puny, guys. That's really puny. That, that's, it's a boat. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty much it. And that's pretty much the episode. Um, yeah. So like I said, I just really don't care anymore. Like, if I'm getting animated, it's because I just can't stand logical contradictions. It's not because I care about the show. I just, I really have a passionate dislike for sloppy logic. So, that's really the only extent to which I care about these episodes anymore. We got three left, and I very seriously doubt after the end of this season, I will continue watching. They're going to have to pull some really good stuff out of their hats at the end of the first season for me to care at all about season two. Um, And it doesn't even necessarily have to do with the actual source material, because I always knew they weren't going to be consistent with the source material because they were compressing the timeline so much. But the unnecessary changes, like, and, and here's a good example. Farazon is a scheming guy in this show, and he's kind of a behind-the-scenes scheming guy, a Machiavellian, you know, power-behind-the-throne type of thing. But in the book, he's supposed to be such a dangerous guy that he's just like, I'm just going to take the throne, people. And he does it, because most of the people are behind him. Here, we don't get that. And so it's just, it's part of the time compression, but some of it is really unnecessary. And so many of the things that they're doing that are now just contradicting the lore, like, I do not like Gilgalad, he's being a dishonest jerk. Why did he even need to be secretive about the Mithril anyway? Why not just send Elrond on a diplomatic mission to the dwarves, saying, we think we've got a problem, you know, can you please help us out with it? as opposed to doing it this way, which is only going to increase suspicion. Like, if I was in Durin's shoes, I'd be like, nah, y'all, y'all done, you know, messed up really bad, because you basically, you know, Elrond personally didn't necessarily know that's what he was doing, but he admitted to coming there under kind of false pretenses anyway, and at this point, it just feels like I'm being taken advantage of, so no, I'm not going to give y'all any mithril at all. So, that's, you know, the problem with the way this whole thing is set up. Gilgalad could have used just pure diplomacy and sent Elrond there for that purpose, but no. Had to do it for, you know, in a completely, you know, just underhanded way. And Gilgalad is 
just telling Elrond to break his oath and making up reasons that don't make any sense to do it. And Gilgalad is supposed to be one of the greatest heroes of the Second Age. I should be liking Gilgalad. I like Celebrimbor more, and Celebrimbor, if anything, should be less likable because he's kind of a proud, you know, creator type who gets a little too interested in his own work. I hate Galadriel. I should at least kind of like Galadriel. I am disappointed in Arpharazon. I am. I keep calling him Arpharazon. It's just Pharazon. And then we have all these other characters who are just completely meaningless. Kimmon has no value. Aarian has no value. Who is the stranger? Who are the three weirdos who show up looking for the stranger? I mean, just... The the sheer amount of stuff that just makes no sense and that has no connection to the source material, it's like I said early on in my first review, it's fan fiction. It's just fan fiction at this point. There's virtually nothing to connect it to the original except names because they have changed everything and they have made up a ton of stuff. The stuff that they didn't completely make up has just been radically altered. Mithril? being forged from the light of a Silmaril in a tree, that's completely counter to the story. And in fairness, Elrond says most people don't believe it. Clearly Gilgalad does! And they're using this to, you know, base their reason for needing the Mithril. Now, a lot of people have speculated, and this may be true, that what's really going on is somewhere behind the scenes is Anatar, who is feeding this kind of stuff to Gilgalad and Celebrimbor so as to get them into the ring-making trap so that they all fall prey to that. And that would work a little bit, except for the fact that the elves really ought to know what happened to the Silmarils, <laughs> pretty much. And also because in the book, Gilgalad is supposed to be one of the people who sees through Anatar. He's like, I know you're not really trustworthy. And so if Gilgalad is falling for this, that undermines his character as it is supposed to be in the book. It's like, you don't have to make him a perfect paragon of virtue, but you do need to be at least a little consistent with the book, please? Just just a little? No. No. We're just going to radically change as much as we possibly can about the source material when we're even using anything adjacent to the source material. So at this point, the lore violations are mounting, the writing inconsistencies are mounting, the... Production quality is not great. It's, you know, some of the visuals are nice, but... Oh, and that's another thing I forgot to mention. The Numenorean armor looks so cheap. The helmets, I mentioned this on Twitter, the helmets are so big that they do not fit. They look like if you bumped it, it would just fall off a person's head. It's like, you couldn't make halfway decent-looking armor and helmets, and this is one of the things that Jackson got right. I have problems with the Jackson movies, but the armor and everything else they made, they look real. They look legit. They look like real things that people would use in a real war. This stuff looks like, you know, dime store stuff that's just a little bit fancier for adult cosplay. That's that's how bad it is in some cases. So this whole thing, like the best thing you can say about this show anymore is that some of the dialogue is kind of interesting to watch. Elrond and Durin have kind of a good relationship going, and that's kind of it. The rest of it, I just don't care. And I'm not even sure how much I'm going to care about Elrond and Durin anymore, because that whole plotline is now becoming so divorced from logical reality that I just, I don't know how much I'm going to be able to invest even in that. So, like at this point, 
the the overall arc of the show has gotten so bad with all of the inconsistencies and everything else that we're below a five for me. Like, I mean, it's, I would have to do more or less what my wife does, which is kind of turn off my brain and do something else while I'm watching it. The thing is, though, if I was doing something else and trying to watch it at the same time, I would not be able to follow it very well, which is why it would work for me. Because if I do try to follow it with my brain, my brain hurts. So yeah, I mean, it's just the writing has gotten to the point of being terrible. And like I said, it was that moment where Elrond is talking to Celebrimbor as if he hasn't broken his oath, when he clearly has. In-universe, Elrond ought to be smart enough to realize this. And it doesn't require him to be smart. That's the problem. It's like, if he was a five-year-old human being, he would probably be smart enough to realize he messed up by telling Celebrimbor. And yet he is a who, however many thousand-year-old elf, and he still doesn't realize that he broke his oath? Like, ah! Oh. When they did that, I just couldn't do it anymore. It's just, it's over. Y'all have completely abandoned any hope of me caring about this show because the writing is so... Whoever's writing this stuff doesn't care about continuity. Just does not care. That's that's all I have to say about that. So, that's my review of Episode 5. I will continue to review the remainder of Season 1. And at the end of Season 1, I will make a final decision about what I may or may not do in the future regarding Season 2. But, 99 to 1 odds, I will not watch Season 2. Because this is just ridiculous. It's not Tolkien. It's not even good fan fiction. It's just bad. And, you know, that, that's all I've got to say. So, that being said, remember social links in the description below. Follow me on Twitter for Tolkien Trivia. Until the next time, I am the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my Patreon and Utreon supporters, including Ringbearers Ego Voice and Emir Ali, and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Tracy Meehan, Nathan DeFore, and Paul Leone.